I'm Carlo Thrace-Walk and these are just some thoughts on a Sunday and what I do in these weekly updates is I share a few thoughts I've had for a week and I also give updates about where we're at in our efforts to help some Afghan Christians who evacuated to Pakistan after the fall of uh, the country to uh, the Taliban back in 2021. So. Um, the way I got involved in this is I have a friend, uh, Mark Ritchie, who had been teaching Bible studies via Zoom in Pakistan uh, since 2020. And then he asked me if I could help him uh, teach some of those classes back in 2021. So I did, did some different classes, spoke at some conferences, and basically just filled in when he needed me to. And then last year in October, um, it expanded a little bit because not a little bit, it expanded a lot. Um, they were, the Afghans were sharing with us some of the, the problems they were facing in Pakistan. Pakistan's a very hostile environment for them. Um, they're, it's, I'm, I've shared a lot of stories about the persecution that Afghans have been facing in Pakistan. Um, you know, arrests, uh, extortion, uh, being ar arrested and held for bribes. It's just a very, very difficult situation for them in Pakistan. And um, most of them that we're connected with have multiple layers of risk. Uh, some of them, not only are they Christians, uh, they are uh, co converts, which makes it even more offensive to Muslims, when a Muslim converts to Christianity, some of them are also uh, an ethnic mi minority, such as Hazara, and then on top of that, they have connections to NATO allies, so they're at risk for multiple reasons. So we began there, and then um, just tried to figure out what it was that we could do, how we could help them, and uh, then Mark brought in his friend Don Shire, who uh, already has a ministry that has been ministering in different areas internationally, and he agreed to come in just as um, so we are partnering with his ministry in that if you go to his website at donshireministries.org and um, select ways to walk when you donate, then he that will go to help um, our people in Pakistan. So um, that's how it started. And so where it's at right now is uh, we have people who have SIV applications in, they're pending and common approval. We have people with P1, P2 applications in that have just been sitting there in phases with no updates. And then we also, are just looking at any other option that we can find. Um, we have people who have not only worked for um, affiliations with the United States, but also with other nations. And so we're just looking at whatever option we can find for them. And um, so one of the most recent, I've shared this a couple times, one of the most recent um, openings, I guess you would call it, is uh, this happened, I think it was in July or June, maybe it was, um, Canada opened up another path for immigration and its employment-based visa, and it's supposed to be expedited to be able to qualify that for that. They have to be considered a refugee. They have to have skills in certain areas, and the other thing is that they have to have an English proficiency at the level required for whatever the job is. Uh, Germany also recently uh, started a, another employment-based visa system, and that also requires a proficiency in either English or German. So both of those um, obviously required English proficiency. The other thing that's been going on is um, some of the embassies in Islamabad are not allowing the people to bring a translator in for asylum interviews. So if they uh, are going in for an interview, they have to be able to know English well enough that they can present their case on their own. And so because of all of these things, um, we have 
you know, I'm still looking at immigration options for them, but we are immediately, what we can do right at this moment is we are working on their English skills. So we have a couple of people that are um, very, uh, not only good translators, but they've taught English. So we have one person that's teaching online and um, another person that is teaching in person. And I think between the two, they told me like one person has like 50 students he's teaching. And uh, <laughs> we haven't funded him for all those yet. And uh, another uh, 70. So we have about 120 people that are working on English. And um, so if you would like to donate and help with that, like for $25, you can fund three months of English classes. So that is one of our big things that we're working on because not only, you know, if they go to a Western country, are they going to need um, the English to be able to like assimilate and, you know, go on with life, but that whether or not they can speak English uh, may determine whether they, whether they get asylum or an, um, an immigration approval. Uh, period. And um, what had been a problem was that when they came to the, um, when they came to Islamabad, there are language centers there, but the language centers are taught primarily by Urdu speakers, and they speak either, you know, Dari, or some of them probably speak their Pashtun, they may speak Pashtu, but um, when you're trying to learn a language, if your teacher doesn't speak the language you know either, that makes it oh even more difficult. So this is um, helpful in that it's giving them uh, English classes taught by you know, the native speaker. So that's what we're working on. But the title of the stream today is Hope Deferred, and that um, you know each week I kind of think, okay, what what's been the theme for the week? And this I think really has been sort of the theme. Um, there's a, a verse in Proverbs 13, 12, which reads, a hope deferred makes a heart sick, but the dream fulfilled is a tree of life. And this has been the situation for them. Um, you know, hope, you know, they've been holding out hope for things, and so far those hopes haven't been fulfilled. And it's difficult when, um, you can't even get a response at all from like some of their applications. Some of them, that was one of the things, some of them have uh, like, I think it was P2 applications in and they got a number, but others haven't even gotten that. And so it's just really, and then there's no response. And so it's really difficult to know, um, not only to have hope, but to even know where to go for the next step. If you go to the Afghanistan Project podcast uh, on YouTube, I'm assuming they have it on like as an actual podcast too, but uh, Beth Bailey interviewed um, someone who was a, um, who had been involved in trying to get people out during the, um, the fall of Kabul in the, the country to the Taliban. And he had connections and was able to get people out in certain ways. He said in the beginning, the first few months after the fall, it was like the Wild West. You know, people were just, you know, doing things and maybe not really doing it through quite legal channels, but just doing it, getting it done and getting people out. And then things started locking down and it became a lot more difficult to help them at all. And um, it's just, uh, you know, both of them said, it's like, you don't even know what to tell people. There's a P1, there's a P1 path that was created for, maybe it was a P2 path that was created specifically in 2021 um, that was designed to help them. And then those, those applications haven't even been processed. And so there's these words, like this may be an option and people are making decisions um, based on those promises and then the promises haven't come and the 15th was on tuesday was a two-year anniversary of the um of our withdrawal in the fall of kabul to the taliban and um there really hasn't been a lot of movement and there's just been a lot of gaslighting but um you know, a couple of weeks ago i did a 
that stream title talk is cheap, and it is. You know, your words don't change reality. Good intentions or feeling bad about something doesn't change the situation. Doing something changes the situation. And we are past the time when we should have done something. We made a promise to our allies that we would stand by them and give them a path out. You know, President Biden said that the Taliban had promised that they would not, would not um, that they would allow anyone to leave that wanted to leave. That's a lie. They are still tracking down our allies and killing them. We are dragging our feet on getting them out, and um, it's unacceptable. All, all of this is unacceptable. The person that was interviewed as in the um, Afghanistan Project podcast this week said he just went to a um, kind of a retreat, or and I can't remember what he called it, but it was. He said that he had been diagnosed with a PTSD before from combat, but he said this was this is worse. He said it was a moral injury. Like he said, I've. You know, I've always been proud of my country, but not at now. Like, this is, like, what we've done. It was just, um, just failing and not even, um, not even trying, um, you know, denying what happened and still denying what's going on is just, it's just completely unacceptable. But just for some um, news of what's going on in Afghanistan this week. So this is an interesting news. So Afghanistan, or the Taliban, have raised the prices for passports for people living outside the country. This is interesting. You may say, oh, that kind of is lame. Honestly, if they will just give people passports, that's amazing. They had the passport office was closed for like four or five months last last year. And um, he, was it four or five months? It was closed from, I think, November through March, to March. And um, you couldn't get it unless if you paid, like paid a, con a Taliban contact directly. And even now, so I, I've explained in a couple other streams, they have this online system and you have to, they only issue a certain number of passports based on the province that you're in. And you have to apply online and then you have to wait your turn for it to come out. This is a standard process. And then you go in and get it. And we've had some people, one person told me that their application had been wiped. Um, somebody had applied like in January and his, I need to check on this. They said, they said that, uh, somebody told me that his, he, his turn was supposed to be coming up in July to get passports. So it's just been a nightmare getting passports, but they are, um, uh, even if they just get them, that's fine. And then the other crazy thing is that, so I've heard there's been these rumors that you could get passports at the embassy. Um, and supposedly like you appear in like the U S you know, you're supposed to be able to get passports and renewals at the embassy. Well, you can get, you've been able to get renewals at the embassy in Islamabad for passports, but uh, the whole embassy, new passports at the embassy has been this mysterious thing. Like, I've heard you can, I've heard you can't uh, first, and then I heard that it was uh, non-biometric passports that you could use for land travel, but you couldn't fly out of Afghanistan with them. Um, and then more recently we heard, I was told that they were going to start issuing biometric passports in Afghanistan or not in Afghanistan, but in Islamabad at the embassy. I was like, okay, great. This is awesome. And at first it was going to be like more money than, than the regular rate. But then I was told it was going to be the standard rate. And then they, I was like, okay, great. When is this going to happen? And we have people that that need to get passports and uh so then they said well they're moving the embassy and then once they get resettled then they're going to start issuing passports biometric passports in islamabad at the embassy so one person went in and um he asked and he was told that no they're not is issuing them and then he said he waited and another family came in and they came to pick up their passports and lo and behold, they get 
their biometric passport there. So they were, uh, they are being issued, but it's like you have to know someone. So it's a whole thing about partiality. It's like things don't happen the same way for everyone. That's just kind of how things go there. So this has been all that's going on. We had another whole conversation about this. It, they heard that uh, Iran and the embassies there were starting to issue passports to Afghans uh, that were in th that were in that country, and that they were going to start doing it in Pakistan, but they haven't yet. So it's it's a huge mess. But if what it takes is a hundred dollars more than what the stated cost is at least they're issuing them and everybody can get them then at least they'd be able to get them because i guess they look at it as this is one of the legal ways they can actually make money um this is uh stephen jensen who i, I quote quite a bit he's if you follow him on twitter he's uh, writing a book on the history of afghanistan and he said you know this is Everybody wants to leave Afghanistan. That's like their most popular, most successful thing is actually issuing passports because everybody wants to get out. So more news in Afghanistan. There was a, an article that um, was written by someone saying that the, the uh, humanitarian crimes the Taliban are committing are actually exaggerated. And Stephen Justin points out that you probably should make clear that the person writing this is the wife of Zalmay Khalizad, who happens to be the, the one of the co-authors of the Doha Agreement. So Zalmay Khalizad, who was a, is a naturalized U.S. citizen who was born in Afghanistan, um, co-authored was one of the two people along with Mark Meadows that wrote the Doha Agreement, which was um, a, an agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban in February 2020 to for the U.S. to withdraw and um, it really did not bind the Taliban to anything it was basically just the uh, U.S. giving saying we're going to get out we will never interfere with in Afghanistan again and oh yeah by the way we'll pay you money it, it, this is basically it's so unbelievably um, craven it's like it is a massive feat that to be able to to betray two countries at once, which is what Zalmay Khalizad did. He betrayed his, his native country of Afghanistan as well as his new country that he's a citizenship citizen of, the United States. At one one fell swoop, three page document, and he manages to betray both. It was just. It's just unbelievable. But I mentioned this last week. If you listen to Generation Jihad, which is um, a podcast in episode 45, Bill Rogio said that there was somebody in the administration that told him they just wanted out and they wanted something that Trump can say, oh, yeah, you know, we made we made a deal here and they just wanted out. And so that's what it is. So they didn't really care what was in it. And that's what they got. They got this ridiculous a uh, piece of paper that uh, requires nothing, required nothing of the Taliban, and basically, you know, if we. But I don't, I don't know why Biden stuck by it because, you know, Trump had just tried to overthrow the U.S. government. So why would you honor anything that, any agreement that some traitor made with our enemies? <laughs> it's unbelievable. Also in Afghanistan, um, I mentioned before that some of our, our people are in an ethnic minority um, known as a Hazara. This was um, a story that was coming out earlier this week um, that some fruit trees had been uh, cut down on Hazara land. It wasn't only that, but it also uh, there was at least one person was killed over this conflict. But you know, this is actually this is one of the things that. Um, uh, if you read in the Bible, they talk about like not cutting down the trees. Like you don't you don't go and destroy you, when you go against your enemy. You don't go and destroy the land. And um, so this is, I mean, it's especially despicable when you consider how um, how dire the the straits are in Afghanistan. That you go and destroy something that's actually producing food in a country that is so short of it. Is just 
really, really despicable. So this is one thing that was uh, going on this week. Um, this is just pointing out that the, the Taliban were asked again that they were going to allow girls to go back to school. They won't give a response. And they're just saying that this is an, a, a, an internal issue in Afghanistan. So one of the things that we agreed to in the Doha agreement was that we would not interfere with Afghanistan. So technically, you know, if we would be saying, uh, even us saying, you know, these things aren't right, we, we've already said we're not going to interfere, that we're not going to interfere, the tel that the Taliban can do whatever they want. It is just, that agreement is so um, despicable. It's unbelievable. And again, the reason I share these things is because there's a lot of stories going on um, in the media that coming out from, you know, U.S. sources, from the State Department, from the Voice of America, from, you know, Zalmay Khalzad trying to justify his, uh, you know, the worst deal of the millennia, um, that the Taliban really aren't that bad. And so I share these things. So when you hear something like that, you'll recognize it for the propaganda that it is. The other thing too, is that this, this person is uh, pointing out that, you know, even like academics and people that are sitting safely in Western countries, they will say the same thing because, you know, they don't want to have to, you know, they got theirs, right? And so they don't have to worry about, um, being hunted down by the the Taliban, which is what happens to anybody who is educated and uh, can in any way challenge the Taliban. And so, you know, there's there's stories out there like the Taliban saying, "Oh, the West is, you know, giving all of our our educated people an out. We have this brain drain of Afghanistan." No, they just want they don't want them to have an out so that there's anybody standing there could possibly ever um, uh, stand up to them or resist them because if they stay in Afghanistan, they're killed. That's what, that's what happens. This is another um, former, uh, former Afghan military leader that was hunted down and killed by the Taliban in this past week. And this is somebody that, according to Biden, the, the Taliban promised that they w would not be uh, any retaliation against our former allies. Again, that was a lie, a complete and total lie. Now, I do want to say, I, um, if all of these, these articles and tweets, I will have an article up on my website in the next couple of days that has a link to both the live stream as well as all of these. And so you can, you know, I'll have, you can go and read more about this if you'd like to. Other thing that the Taliban did this week, they did an absolute ban on any political parties. Um, so, like they have elections anyway. I mean, it's just, it's a theocracy. It's they rule and nobody else gets to say about anything. This is yet another former um, military uh, uh, person who was with the former Afghan military that was killed. Um, this is an article about the um, increase in women killed in Afghanistan. And women are, I've said this before, it's basically illegal to be a woman in Afghanistan. You're not to go out. There was a, another uh, person that shared this morning. I didn't have time to uh, get a screenshot of this one. but. When the latest decree by the Taliban is that when women are in, if a cab driver drives a woman, the woman has to be in the trunk of a car. <laughs> they are, the Taliban are terrorists and thugs, and they are, it, it's just, I mean, gender apartheid does not even begin to describe the horror that it is for a woman to be in Afghanistan. This is an article about um, a, a girl who was forced into marriage with a Talib um, because he, at first she refused, but 
he threatened to kill her father if she didn't agree to marry him. And this is super common, super common. And usually they're, they're marrying someone much older that already has two, three wives. So very, very common. Um, this is a, an article about, I mean, this is the thing, as much, um, as brutal as the Taliban are, I mean, still there is resistance and there's resistance really without any help. Um, they are, the Taliban are, um, they get all this, there's aid coming in. And I shared last week that the Taliban have really infiltrated any foreign aid that, that comes into the country. There's aid coming in, but it's not getting to the people. The people are starving. And we fund the Taliban. We give them money and we prop them up. And yet still people, and particularly women, are resisting. Now, I was just thinking about this this last week. A few weeks ago, I shared that there was reports of a um, the Taliban hunting down, that they had been hunting down a group of women for like three months. But that's all the account said, I, I don't know what was going on with that. But then after that, that's when they shut down the, um, the beauty parlors. Like they wouldn't allow any salons to be open and they put all these women out of work. And I was thinking, so is there like this, like brigade of women that's like this resistance group that they're like afraid of, that they're trying to track down and they're afraid that that's where they're meeting is that beauty salons. I have no idea if that's true, but I would love it if it was. I, uh, my favorite woman in the Bible is JL, and that's really what, what Afghanistan needs is, is a brigade of JL to take out these Cretans that are terrorizing the country. So more this, more this week. Um, there were journalists that were arrested, and it's just, you know, again, like anyone who can challenge the Taliban in any way are at risk of being arrested and killed. And super fun, uh, the Taliban are now partnering with Huawei which in China to put up surveillance cameras. So let's just do a recap. We <sighs> left all our data about who was working with us, right? We also left the biometric uh, scanning devices so they could be tracked down. And now, oh, by the way, the Taliban are going to be partnering with China, so they're going to have video surveillance. Now, one person said they can't even keep the electricity on, so how are they going to keep these cameras going? Which is a good point. But still, I mean, this should be a cause for concern, I would think. Okay. And then this is a really, um, you can read it if you go to my website, I'll have this the article linked too. But this is a really interesting um, article on uh, drugs and the Taliban. And the Taliban have basically funded their operations with, you know, drug trafficking. They pretty much have the market cornered on heroin. And um, the article explains the dynamics of it because the Taliban have made a big show of like, oh, we're cutting down on um, uh poppy production, like harvesting, it was actually up 30%, which I guess was kind of like a loophole. They let farmers, um, they gave a pass to last year's crops. And so that's, I guess that's what it was saying, but they are saying what's going to happen now. This was a, a, um, a industry and they don't have the water for other types of crops because, you know, obviously these, this uh, land could be used for something that, to produce food um, that people could eat versus, you know, uh, drugs. But um, they don't have the infrastructure or the, you know, the water and irrigation for it. So all their money that's coming in that is being diverted from you know, foreign aid from other places could be used with that, but obviously it's not. But that was a that was an interesting article that I came across this week. And what they were saying was they think that um, they'll probably turn to so that, that meth has already they've already started with that, and they'll probably 
turn to uh, producing fentanyl. You know, if they, if they can't grow one thing, they'll, they'll do something else because that's basically how they've been funding, funding their fighters. But um, it's a mess. Uh, this is uh, another article about the um, just how dire the healthcare situation is in um, in Afghanistan, and the World Health Organization is asking for funding to be increased for um, healthcare in Afghanistan. The thing is, it needs it, but the problem is that anything that goes to Afghanistan is diverted by the Taliban because we turned. The country over to terrorists and thugs. So, this is another thing that came out. Um, just when you think that the Taliban can't get more ridiculous, uh, they managed to do something. If you thought telling women that they had to go in trunks and cars, if they uh, this the uh, one of their media ministers or whatever his, his name is, he um, saying that women lose value if they're seen in public. Yeah, because that makes perfect sense. But anyway, so um, this is, the thing is, there's this big push by the Taliban they want to be recognized by internationally as a credible uh, government. Terrorists and thugs are, will always be terrorists and thugs, and they will not be a credible government no matter who uh, gaslights and says otherwise. There's also, like I said, a big push in certain areas internationally to recognize the Taliban because they don't want to have to deal with the mess that is there. And so if they can delude themselves and say, oh, the Taliban really aren't that bad, then they can just you know, sweep things under the rug and not have to deal with the fallout that we left. But what he's saying here is that they want to have good relations with other countries based on Islamic law. And this is so, I don't know if I have it up here. I'm, I guess I'm out of order a little bit, but let me ask you, what is what does that mean? What is Islamic law? Because according to the Quran, um, there can be no uh, fellowship or parity with unbelievers, and so according to Islamic law, you know they're obligated to. Um, subjugate us, right, at the very least. And when you look at how they're treating their fellow countrymen, why would you think that they would, who are fellow Muslims, why would you think that they would um, treat countries run by what they consider idolaters or infidels any different? Why would you think that? <laughs> Is that supposed to be reassuring? I have no idea. So, uh, going down to, um, okay, am I down to this now? Where am I? Okay, uh, this is another story about, um, someone made a comment that this is, either the women are the ones that are really, um, it's bad for everyone, but it's especially bad for women, but, and they are the ones that are really, the men are too, but both men and women are really fighting back and resisting against the Taliban. And this week, it's on the, I think this is on the 15th, there was a uh, scene, there's a video of the Afghan flag of the former republic that was flying over Jalabad. And this is actually caused a big ruckus, you know, so the hope is still there. And um, even though it seems like the rest of the world has you know, given up on Afghanistan and is trying to you know, do everything they can to ignore what's going on. You know, people still have hope and they're still pushing back. But um, next, I'm just going to have a few stories about, um, you know, people remembering the the withdrawal and 
this gentleman shared this on August 15th, and he said, you know, for centuries, people will always remember this. You know, people clinging to the planes and falling off planes in flight, you know, trying to get out, and we left them. And this was a comment by someone who said that she's talked to multiple people in Afghanistan and Pakistan, thinks that the people who fell off the planes were the lucky ones because of just the horror of what they're they're going through. Um, it is absolutely, you know, unbelievable. The as bad as people thought it might be, it's way worse, way way worse. And it's almost like it's almost like um, the. They were in power in the 90s, right? And it's almost like we're going to, we're going to, because there was this break, it's like well, we're going to make it worse. You know, that, that's almost what it's like. And it's just totally unbelievable what is going on there. And um, every week it just seems like it gets more ridiculous. Uh, Steven Jensen posted something about the, um, just remembering the sacrifice of the people who stood to the very end, you know, and we left and, you know, I saw some conversations on Twitter about, you know, like, well, why couldn't they hold it? And, you know, they were kind of mocking the Taliban, like, you know, these, um, you know, I'm not even going to say some of the words you're saying, but really dismissing them like, oh, it's just these guys in trucks and, you know, like they're dumb. And it's like, you know, they, <laughs> you, the problem is the arrogance and hubris. That is why we're in the situation that we're in right now. That exact, that exact reason. And dismissing the, um, you know, underestimating your, your enemy and, uh, if you listen to people who have been looking at the situation for decades, they said we built a Western army when that wasn't what Afghanistan needed. Uh, the guy that was on the Afghanistan Project podcast this last week said that you know, the Afghan Air Force is really good, but the Air Force was not always, they, it wasn't always the right uh, need for every situation and that Afghan Air Force also re relied very heavily on foreign contractors to keep going and operating and once we pulled out they were all gone I mean, we basically um, not only did we just walk out but it's like we built all this thing and, and blew it up and then we punctured it and pulled out and then we we made an agreement with the people that we went in to um, unseat to begin with. It's just, it's just absolutely insane. This is a picture of the last day before the fall of Kabul. Uh, it's a picture of the presidential palace. But um, also, I, I've shared this before. There's an um, article on The Intercept called, um, I can't remember what it's called. I'll, I'll put this in the, the article when I I put all the links up on my site, but they talk about, you know, the, the CIA has these, these special strike teams. So the big, um, the muscle of the Afghan military was really the, the Air Force and then these special strike teams, both of which, like in after the signing of the Doha Agreement, were uh, overused and they started to be sandbagged. And in that article, and then here as well, they said there was coordination between the the U.S. and the Taliban ahead of time, and so there was already an agreement to basically turn it over to the Taliban. So when we say that, oh well, they could have held it, no, we set it up so they didn't, and we made an agreement with them basically to hand it over. So there was coordination beforehand. That's one of the things that. Um, the, in the article that I'll link to, that they were these strike teams, they were supposed to be going to the airport 
to guard the airport there. And so they would get to, they were all like geared up because they were thinking they were going to have to fight their way, way to there. And they got to the checkpoints and they were just waved through. There was already an agreement there. Like certain people would be allowed out and then that was, that was it. We, we made that agreement. We just put on the show. And, you know, if you talk to Afghans who weren't ones that were agreed to get out, it was like after the fall of Kabul, it was just like communication cut off, radio silence, you know, just completely ghosted. I mean, I, and it wasn't just the United States. It was other NATO allies, too. It was just like, we're done, and we're, we're not going to talk to you anymore. So um, this is a – Stephen Johnson had this – this uh, whole uh, thread of information about, um, you know, I, there's this claim that, you know, oh, well, you know, Afghans support the Taliban. He says it's not true, you know, that only 4% of Af people in Afghanistan supported the Taliban. So they are, you know, from a very um, specific tribe. And um, he said that, he just pointed out that um, actually there's more support for in the U.S. for an armed takeover over of the government than there is in Afghanistan, which is pretty telling and not surprising, honestly, from some of the things that we're seeing. But, um, and somebody commented, you know, the 4% probably just wanted to keep, you know, their heads over their bodies. Like, if you speak out, you know, in certain areas, if you speak out against the Taliban, you know, you're dead. It's just, um, they're, Again, they're terrorists and thugs that are, I mean, think of the, the most brutal uh, crime organization that you can imagine. That's what the Taliban is, and that's who we handed the country over to. And, you know, there, this is a comment about um, Ghani, who is the president of the former republic. He bailed, too. So uh, the people were sold out. And... Um, there have been this article on the bulwark about and oh this is actually the guy that was on the Afghanistan Project podcast he wrote this article for the bulwark about you know remembering the people that um, we left behind uh, on that the podcast he talks about you know his efforts he like I said he was it was kind of the wild west in the first few months and then he was trying you know um, after that for about a year and you know just is running into brick walls too. So anyway, um, this is a, like I said, this is a two year anniversary and where are we? Uh, are we any further along than we were last year? Now it's actually a more dangerous situation. I don't think I have a screenshot of this, but there was an article posted this morning that the Taliban are boasting about that they have suicide bombers in their army. <laughs> For what? What are they gonna do it against? against fellow Afghans, well, who knows? They might, because it is the Taliban. But who, who is this threat against? I mean, think about it. So anyway, there's another article in Politico this week about um, this, about Zalmi Khalizad. And he just, he has absolutely, I, if you see an article talking about how it was the right decision to pull out and that the Taliban aren't that bad, look at the author. Odds are it's Zalmi Khalizad or somebody associated with him. No, it was not a good agreement. It was not a good decision. It will never be a good agreement. This is literally the all-time worst deal ever. It wasn't even a deal. It was saying, you know, it was a, an agreement to defeat. And he just he just refuses to acknowledge it and still tries to make himself a thing. It's not. So um, this is just a note from... Is, um, Afghan American Foundation about the countless broken promises that we've made. We can't even imagine manage to pass the Afghan Adjustment Act for the people that we did get out. So not only are people sitting there in limbo, uh, you know, people being picked off by the Taliban that are still in Afghanistan, uh, being risk of deportation in countries like Iran and Pakistan. Even in, you know, they're sitting there waiting in these, 
these uh, lily pads where they, they have some safety, like the United Arab Emirates and Albania and places like that. But we cannot even handle, we can't even imagine to manage to handle the, the applications of the people that we got here because Congress is too concerned about just playing, um, you know, just making an agenda out of things. We can't possibly like do anything that actually is productive and pass an act that would give them status here. So they're still in limbo too. Still can't even, can't even do that. There was an article that came out, this is like international rebuke, like of all of these um, humanitarian organizations are just basically saying to the countries of the world, you know, you need to act, this is shameful, and they're right, it is. This is absolutely shameful. And another article this week, um, like so saying the U.S. needs to have a policy for Afghanistan, because we don't, we're like too busy, like just denying reality that we just like ignore the problem. And that is not going to happen because if you ignore the problem, eventually the problem is going to come and find you. And this was, you know, just pointing out that, you know, there is a severe security threat, which is all the terror. We've, we've basically created a, a haven for terrorist groups in Afghanistan. This is what is there now. And to say that the Taliban are our partners in counterterrorism is a complete delusion. Complete delusion. More, this is like a thread you just have to read through. So I guess there was money that was, um, was supposed to be for the Republic or something and it was, it's just been sitting there and hasn't, there's assets that are frozen that haven't been released to the Taliban. And I guess there was missing money too. Big surprise. Big surprise. All just a big mess. This is not wholly negative, but this is an Afghan who actually uh, won the, um, what was it, Taekwondo championships in, um, as a refugee. And there was an interview with her, but she was, she's, was crying because she's basically stateless. She doesn't have a country. And, you know, the whole thing with the Olympics is that you are representing your country and what does she have to represent? If she were in Afghanistan right now, if she were alive, she would be, um, you know, either stuck in her home um, or if she went out, the Taliban would say, you need to be in the trunk of a car because we can't have you sitting in a car like a person. <sighs> Other... Um, just little little bit of news. The uh, there's been some some drama about um, Germany. Uh, last October, they announced that they were going to uh, take 1,000 Afghans a month for the next two years, and uh, that was when I first started getting involved in this. And so I was trying to find out, you know, what the situation was, and it what I was told at that time, that it was only for uh, people in Afghanistan and they had to be identified by uh, organizations that the German government had already worked with. So they basically already had to be on a list to be as being um, at risk to be considered for this program. And then some, a little bit of time went on and it turned out that no one had actually been moved under that program. And so there was a big ruckus about that. And I guess there was some corruption or something determining and determining who was going to be there. But then they were supposed to start moving in pe people again in July. So um, we have, there's one family um, in our group that's been told that he's going to get a referral to Germany. I'm thinking, great, they're going to finally start moving people. And then the last I talked to him, he said, well, maybe five or six months. Why does this take so long? Why does this take so long? I don't know. Like, just get a move on. Like, if you were, 
if, if this were somebody like your family member or somebody you actually cared about, would you like, would they like dink around like this? No, I mean, people, it's just, it should not be this complicated. It really should not be this complicated. So anyway, uh, not Afghanistan, but this is uh, Pakistan. Uh, was this yesterday? I think this was just yesterday. The um, There was someone who, this is in Falzabad, there was uh, someone was accused of blaspheming the Quran or something. I never really heard what specifically it was, but it started this mob and they started attacking, uh, burning down churches. And so when this was posted, four churches had been burned down. There was a mob that was going into um, Christians' homes um, and, you know, destroying the homes, attacking the Christians. Uh, at last I heard, um, just this morning, there's been a total of 29 churches that have been burned down. A lot of uh, were Christians killed. It was uh, really kind of a mass a mass um, attack and I've mentioned before that okay actually so last year Afghanistan was considered the most dangerous country in the world and then Pakistan was number for Christians Pakistan was number seven crazily enough this year they've moved Afghanistan now I don't even know how that's possible but um, Af Pakistan is still number seven so it's very hostile we had uh, last November, um, a young pastor that he was actually my first translator when I started doing Bible studies in um, Pakistan. He, some men broke into his home, and uh, it was they were just because they were holding meetings, you know, and preaching, and uh, they beat his wife, and um, so, and then people were threatening them. He he lived in Falzabad in the same country and so eventually he had to uh, they can go back to their home they had to um, basically plus I, I heard he was uh, they're traveling to different remote villages and leaving Bibles and preaching there so anyway it's very very um, dangerous um, place to be a Christian they're always at risk and uh, this is what actual persecution looks like but I wanted to put a map up. Um, if you see where the the red star is, that's where Falzabad is. So you can kind of see, I know sometimes we in the U.S. are a little shaky in our geography. So you see down at the bottom right, there's India. And then kind of laying on top of that is Pakistan. And then uh, on, on to the like upper, kind of upper left, there's Afghanistan. And then to the far left is Iran. But the uh, red dot is where where the the riots were in Falzabad, and then do I have a purple star there? Then um, Islamabad, is where the purple star is, and uh, that's where that's uh, the capital of Pakistan. So it's just a little bit of geography, but that particular map is sh broken up by um, ethnicities, and so you can kind of see how. Um, if you, if you read about things going on in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and some of the different tribes, sometimes it's helpful to know what the, the tribes are so you can kind of get some sort of idea of the dynamics. So, <coughs> um, anyway, that was, that was this week. And as far as what we were doing, um, we're still just... I don't know. They're they're working on English. I had a, uh, a Bible study this morning. I send them a link to. We, we have a hybrid class for my Bible study in my church, and so a lot of them join into my Bible study, and we had a little chat afterwards. And so they're still working on their English. So that's what we're that's what we're focusing on, and um, need to work on getting funding for them so we can get the school funded and uh, the class is done and uh, also like when they get far enough um, they're going to need to take probably for at least for the employment based immigration pass they're probably going to need to take um, not probably they will need to take the IELTS exam so I need to be able to do that too and so I need to need to work on that um, I, I just really feel like it's been, I've been sending emails and 
<laughs> we haven't been getting responses. And some of them, like, it surprises me I didn't get responses to this. And so I'm not sure. I, I guess I just need to follow up, I, I guess. And it, I've just had so much going on this past week. But I mentioned I did the um, a live stream on Monday with the uh, a couple of friends about the Barbie movie. And when I set it up, it was not last minute, but I um, I set it for the 14th. And it was just when I talked to my friends, it was just a little bit over a week and a half before. So I didn't really have a lot of a lot of uh, time ahead of time. And I, I said, well, I'll just send an email to some of these other people that wrote articles about the movie and see if they want to participate. Didn't get any responses. No responses. And so Monday... I start getting some replies back and one of the people said, oh, I just saw this. I just saw this email. And I'm thinking, so are my emails delayed? Is that that what's going on? Because that's happened before. Like I've, and I, I know that it's happened sending them out and even like receiving them. Like one time, this is a few months ago, but I had, I got an email from my dad and it had been sent three months before. But what it shows in my inbox is not the date it comes through. It's the date it was sent originally. And the only reason I saw it was because it had I had it filtered to a, um, a folder. Otherwise, I wouldn't have seen it as a new email. It would have been like way, way back. So I don't know if that's what happened, happening to some of my emails, but I just need to keep following up on that. Luckily, I, I did start tracking everything. I have a project set up in ClickUp, so track what I've been doing because I've sent a lot of emails but anyway you just need to do that I need to have I'm not Catholic but I almost need to find like find out who like the saint for technology is because that's I think that's part of the problem I don't think people are seeing my emails so anyway just need some favor there but that was uh, that was this week other funny thing kind of related both the Barbie movie and this effort. I, uh, like I said, I was sending emails to different people who had written some interesting articles on the movie just to have a discussion about it. And um, I came across a quote that somebody shared this page or this profile shared on um, both on uh, about the Barbie movie. And, but I couldn't find, there was no link to the article. And so I tracked the person down on Facebook and I said, I saw this quote that you made about the Barbie movie. I thought it was really great. You know, um, is there, is it posted somewhere where I could read it? And she had posted on a personal profile and also in this group. And she said, I said, well, is it public? And she said, well, she said, I don't, um, I don't friend people that I don't know. And then she's like, but tell me a little bit about yourself. And then, so she was asking me all these questions. And it was funny because I swear I have talked to people who like are in the NRF who are hunted down by the Taliban and I've had less uh, vetting and questioning to connect with them than I have just to read this article about the Barbie movie because it was turns out it was in this Facebook group uh, for egalitarians. So it's like it's like more vetting for this this Facebook group there than there was there has been for you know people who have their lives at risk but I thought that was kind of funny and then so I she sent me the link to the group and so I applied and answered some questions I didn't even get get approved to be in their group until after the live stream was over so I don't know if they wanted to like see what I thought about things so anyway I thought it was kind of funny but <sighs> yeah, anyway, but that was this week. That was this week. Just keep um, keep bugging people, I guess. But uh, oh, awesome. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that book. I actually, so in addition to that video. I also have on Till We Have Faces, I have an article on an unexpected journal. Um, it's called The Making of a Hero. It's actually in the, it was from our first year 
third issue on Courage, Strength, and Hope, and that is on Tell We Have Faces, and actually the movie with Jar Butler um, on uh, Dear Frankie, the comparison between the two, but I, I love that. That's one of my, it's actually one of my favorite um, novels of uh, C.S. Lewis now, but anyway, um, yeah, it's very, it's very close. I mean, this is the thing. I, um, it's one of the things that we've been doing in the Bible studies that I meet with them on Mondays is um, we do a comparison between uh, what it says in whatever passage that we are studying and uh, what is taught in Islam. So what are the differences? You know, how are they the same if in any way at all and how are they different? And right now we are in the book of Philippians and um, it's been I mean, it always is. It's always really interesting going through passages with them and just really sitting in, okay, so what was the situation going on? And when Philippians was written, Paul was in prison, I think probably in Rome. It was shortly before he was, you know, martyred in um, in Rome. But um, he was he was in jail and he was in prison. He was, the church in Philippi was going through a lot of persecution and um, he was encouraging them. You know, remembering what their hope was, encouraging them to finish the race and to keep their hope in God. And um, that is, you know, we're sitting here in this Christian nation that doesn't act very Christian. And um, we just, we don't even, we don't even understand what it was, right? That what it was like. And to be under that pressure and the, the cost that they had to pay, the the um, the real cost of being a Christian, where they had to like leave everything behind and be willing to break ties with friends, and and I, I that's one of the things that's been really difficult for me over the past three years. It's like, you know, things weren't what I thought people who weren't who I thought and it's been so much disappointment and you know it's it's just realizing that's life you know that is life and um you know they're in the situation they're 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 basically the Afghans that are the Afghan believers are basically in the exact same situation that their early church was in you know that that severe persecution and um it's just um It's, it's been a real experience. And I also, the sad thing is, like, you know, I want them to be able to have more resources and um, for teaching, but I have to be cautious about who I refer to them because so often the the pulpit is used for something other than the gospel. And um, how can you send them somewhere, you know, that they're going to, I don't know. I mean, think about, think about some of the, the, uh, the sermons that make the news or um, how many of those would you really be able to share to people that are like their only hope is in the gospel, right? And um, I don't know. It, it's been an experience, but um, yeah. But thanks for watching. Keep us all in your prayers. There's a lot of needs, a lot. Uh, that was one of the things that somebody asked me like in the beginning, like a few months ago, she's like, what is the plan? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> We're just trying to like go the next step. I don't know what the whole plan is. I don't know what the whole scope is. Um, obviously, you know, this preparing them as far as English is one of the things, but also um, this last week I got a request for they needed, uh, they were asking for help with some medical costs, but turns out, you know, I was asking a couple of people that I know and they said, well, they can go to the government hospital and treatment's free. 
So this is Pakistan, third world country. They can go to the hospital and get free treatment. We can't do that here in the United States. But anyway, so the treatment is free. But the, the issue is, um, I said, well, what's, I was telling her this, and she said, well, the, the uh, government hospital is not good. And I said, well, what is, what is the problem? And it's actually, um, the problem is malnutrition. The, the conditions that they have are called, caused by malnutrition. So that's the issue. Um, and I think that the government hospital can treat what they have in PACS. I don't care how bad the, the hospital is, government hospital is, is in Islamabad. I'm sure they can handle that. But the problem is that they just need to eat more. <laughs> they need to have money so they can uh, have food that is actually healthy. Because that's one of the things that I've um, been reading about and hearing about is that a lot of times even the food that's given by some of the international like the humanitarian organizations they're not good they'll have like plastic in the rice and you know they're like contaminated and it's just you know even the food that they're getting is not good and that was another whole big drama we had there was a um i was told of an irish organization that was helping christians with food but the person the, the person that was distributing it in Islamabad was refusing some people because they said, well, you were a former Muslim. And so I'm not, he wouldn't help them. So that was the whole thing. So anyway, it's more than, I don't know, just looking at what the whole picture, I guess, is, you know, they have to be able to make it to the next step in order for, the, for even to learn English or get a visa I mean, they have to be alive to get there. So anyway, so to keep us all in your prayers, the right people come into our path and the right doors open. But anyway, thanks for watching and I'll see you next time.